0: We're continuing today in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. We're in the second half of the Gospel where the focus shifts from Jesus in the first half of the Gospel, bearing witness and sharing the message that he has come to share with the world. And now he's turned his attention to the disciples, to those who have turned to him in faith. And we see a writing Uh, emphasis through these final chapters of abiding in Jesus and he abiding in the disciples. So we're continuing here and as I've been preparing uh, for the message today it struck me that security is a big business. I know this because every time I get on next door I see a a whole litany of uh, ring videos. Any of you have one of these at your home? People have discovered that uh, they, they feel a lot safer if they can see who's in front of their house. And apparently, they want they, you see them on next door all the time, right? Uh, who is this person that walked in front of my house at 2 a.m.? and Or, you know, uh, what is this coyote doing on my street? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so apparently, being able to see what's on the other side of your front door makes people feel safer. Uh, I'm Matt Reeder, uh, working for Cabela's, uh, was, was it Cabela's? Am I saying it right? Okay. Uh, he was telling me that the first year of COVID, that they couldn't keep up with the demand for handguns, uh, that they sold more that year than they had ever sold. And uh, everybody was uncertain about what might be coming and felt like if you had a, a handgun, you'd be safer. He also told me about people that kind of regretted it immediately and came and returned it. But uh, th- this whole idea of what can I do to feel secure and, and safe? And, and perhaps it's somewhat ironic that these methods don't always increase our sense of, of safety. Sometimes I think if you spend all day watching your ring video, you're probably more worried than if you just forgot about it. Um, And uh, oftentimes, the things we do to try to increase our sense of well-being and security don't really work. If only there were some way to live truly secure, free from fear, to be able to be joyful about the life we're living, even in this world, in spite of the darkness and the menacing things that are around us, well, you're in luck. Jesus had something to say about that, and we're going to look at that in today's passage. We're in John chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 19. I've titled today's message, True Security and Joy. Now we're continuing, before I start reading here in verse 9, we're continuing in... This prayer of Jesus, which takes up basically chapter 17 of John. And I've broken it into a number of sermons because I don't want to rush through. I feel like there's a lot to look at um, in this prayer. So the first part we looked at in in our previous message, uh, the first eight verses of chapter 17. The first part, Jesus begins this prayer. He's addressing God the Father, and uh, he talks about what he is accomplishing for his disciples. And how he has made it possible to share with them life eternal and even defines what life eternal is. Notice Jesus doesn't say uh, this is how you get life eternal. He says life eternal is to know God and to know God the Father and to know the Son whom he sent. That life is discovered in the knowing of God and he has come to make possible that we know God as he has known us and that we enter into this relationship that through which God can share eternity with us. His own eternal living, uh, he can share that with us. So he's, he's talked about that in the, in the opening verses and he continues now in verse 9. I am asking for them, and he's talking about those who have believed in him, the disciples. I am asking for them. I am not asking for the world, but for those whom you have given me, because they are yours. All things that are mine are yours, and the things that are yours, mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now, Jesus moves to intercession in his prayer he's going to begin praying for people and asking the Father on on the behalf of his disciples so he asks the Father for the disciples and he makes it very clear I'm not asking for the world and you might say well wait didn't John didn't Jesus say earlier in chapter 12 that I didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world Aren't we told in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, this is how God loved the world in that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So why is Jesus here making the point, I'm not asking for the world? Well, in the Gospel of John, this term world or cosmos uh, is, is used both in the in the Great sense of God loves all of the creation He has created. God's love extends to every corner of creation and every being that exists and whose existence He sustains by His will. God is lovingly disposed toward His entire creation. But there's also a sense in which world is used in the Gospel of John to describe the the world under the power of sin and death, the world that is at odds with its creator, that is very much hostile to God and is very much at war with God and very intent on breaking free from God. And in that sense, Jesus says, and that's the sense in which he's using the term world or cosmos here. I'm not asking for the world at large. I'm not asking for the aspects of the world that are uh, hostile and uh, rejecting me. But I'm asking specifically for the subset within creation of those who have turned in faith. Here's the thing. God loved the whole world, and he sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world so that the redemption plan is extended to everyone. But God did not override free will. God did not redeem creation in such a way that you're going to share eternity with him whether or not you want to, and you're going to enjoy his goodness forever whether or not you like it. Jesus very clearly understands that he came only to extend this life and redemption to those who want it. And if there is only eternal life in God, and if God is only good and bright and holy, and that's the only thing that you can attach eternity to, and you don't like that, God's not going to force you to endure it forever. He's not going to force you to embrace this forever. So Jesus turns his attention not to the world at large, but to the subset of those who, will turn, who have turned in faith. And he describes them as the ones the Father has given to him. We already saw that in the verses last week. That Jesus, even though he was the one preaching, even though he was the one teaching, even though he was the one doing these miraculous works among the disciples that caused them to turn to him in faith, he doesn't even claim them as his own. He says they belong to the Father because Jesus is very upfront about it. Everything I have told you is simply me relaying to you the message that the father gave me to speak and every amazing work he did among them Jesus was very clear it's nothing but me doing the works the father has given me to do and the father sent me to rescue you so when people responded to Jesus in faith he he said they're yours father you have given them to me And uh, uh, they belong to me because you have given them to me because they are yours to begin with. And then he goes on to describe how this relationship between God the Son and God the Father works. All things that are mine are yours. Jesus says, everything I have is yours. And that's something you and I can say. Everything I have, God, is yours. We understand that. We did not create a single thing. Everything that exists, even my own body, is not something I made for myself. It's something God made and entrusted to me. So everything I have is yours. I can say that. But notice what he says next. And the things that are yours, mine. Now, that's the part I can't say. I can't say, uh, you know, God, everything you have belongs to me. Um, Now, I do think the Bible teaches us that God has chosen to share all of his goodness with us. That he withholds no good thing from his children. So, in a sense, there is a mutuality even in our relationship. But clearly, within the Godhead, it's different. Everything that the Son has, that everything that belongs to him, everything he owns, is the Father's and vice versa. There's no splitting out the one God into three God's. There is one God, and what the Son owns, the Father owns. What the Spirit owns, the Son and Father own. Uh, Everything that pertains to one of them pertains to all, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally one God. And he speaks of these disciples who belong to Jesus because they belong to the Father. And he says, I have been glorified in them. The things that are happening in the lives of Jesus' disciples are bringing glory to Jesus. They used to just be a ragtag group of random people. Fishermen, one guy was a publican, he was a tax collector. One guy was a political activist, a zealot. I mean, they just went about their stuff doing things and all of a sudden Jesus changed their lives. People like Mary Magdalene tormented by seven demons and all of a sudden, she's a new person because of Jesus. So in, in them, Jesus is being glorified. He has completely, radically changed their lives and that transformation for from death to life, from darkness to light, that change in their lives has brought glory to Jesus because everyone can see that the, the reason these lives are different is Jesus, and that's why Jesus is interceding on their behalf. He's asking basically for the Father to guard their lives and the glory that they are bringing to Jesus. He knows how vital that is to the task of drawing people to redemption, to rescue. You know, before anybody turns to Jesus in faith, uh, for most of us, we have witnessed his hand at work in the life of somebody around us first. We have seen his glory reflected in the heart and life of somebody around us. And that has been part of what has drawn us to Jesus. Jesus knows that and he intercedes and asks the Father to guard this, to protect this. As the disciples are enjoying life eternal through the knowing of the Father and Jesus, the quality of their lives brings glory to Jesus, who is the actual cause for this new life. And Jesus asked the Father to guard the disciples. I want to ask you to think about this. If you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, how have you experienced the Father guarding the glory of life in Jesus in your life? Let's keep reading verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, just as we are. While I was with them, I was guarding them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded, and not one of them was destroyed, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I am speaking these things in the world, so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." Why is Jesus appealing to the Father on behalf of his disciples? Well, the, the, sh- the immediate reason is he knows he's about to be absent. He knows and he speaks in the present of something that has uh, yet to happen. It, there are still a few hours remaining before this will be uh, actually enacted. But he says, I am no longer in the world anticipating that within 24 hours he's going to be in the grave. And he's not going to be around to do this guarding that he's talking about Then that he says he has been doing. I'm no longer in the world, and Jesus knows even after he rises from the dead and spends 40 days visiting with his disciples, he will ascend again to the right hand of the Father, and they will be in the world uh, without him physically there to watch over them. So he knows the Father is going to have to protect and guard them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. He appeals to the Father as Holy Father. I think it's very interesting. Holy means set apart. And every time we use that term when we're talking about us or things here in this world, uh, it's, it's... Connected to God, right? Uh, If you are holy, that means you are set apart exclusively uh, to God. You belong to God and you are there for his purposes. That's why the Bible describes those who follow Jesus as saints, as holy people, as those who have been set apart because we have surrendered our lives to Christ and he has purchased us by his blood on the cross and we now belong to him and we are set apart to God. Set apart, much like, uh, like our baptistry is a good example. Uh, this is set apart to the task of people communicating publicly their commitment of faith in Jesus and going through obedience in the act of baptism. We don't use that to cool off in summer, we don't use that to take baths. It is holy, it is set apart for the task uh, that, that is attached to what God has called us to do. But what does it mean when we say that God is holy? Set apart to who? Our holiness is derivative. It's it's connected to God. God's holiness is intrinsic. It's built into who he is. And God is set apart in the sense that none of us can ever be. God is set apart in that he exists in and of himself and is in no way dependent on anything else existing to be. He will always be, in that sense, outside of creation. He will always be, in that sense, outside of the universe, the cosmos, the multiverse, whatever you want to call it. He will always be beyond all of that. Because he alone depends on nothing but himself for his existence. And he is truly set apart. I think Jesus wants his disciples to remember this about the Father to whom he is appealing on their behalf. This is not just some local deity. This is the God of above all. This is the God set apart from creation itself. This is the Holy Father. And the wonder that we could use both of those terms together and talk about the same person, this grand, beyond cosmic God, is to be known as Father. As one who has such an intimate, loving, caring relationship with us that we can know him as both of those extremes. I think Jesus was very deliberate in his choice of words. Keep them in your name which you have given me. It's very uh, important that we remember the name Jesus has Yahshua. Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh, the holy name of God, I am. And uh, it combines it with the verb to save. Yahweh saves. It's written into his name, why he came here, to rescue, to redeem. And it even tells us something about who God is. God is Savior God. Creation is the story of redemption. The whole history of the universe is the story of the redeeming God. But beyond that, I think another sense in which Jesus might be talking about the name which you have given me. Throughout the Gospel of John, we have many instances in which Jesus, referring to himself, says, I am. And not just in regular sentences like, I am hungry, uh, but saying things like, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't just say, I'm really old. Before Abraham was, I was. No, he deliberately uses the name Yahweh. I am. The eternal present that is uh, communicated in that holy name. The idea that God exists and is dependent on nothing for his existence. He is. Everything else that exists can only say, I am, so long as God chooses to allow me to be. God alone can say, I am, end of sentence. Because he depends on nothing. So Jesus has used that title uh, multiple times in his ministry. I am. He's asking the Father to guard his disciples with the full, omnipotent, glorious power that God alone has. In that name you have given me. And how does Jesus see this happening? How does he see the protection of the Father actually being implemented in our lives? That they may be one just as we are. One of the key ways in which God guards our lives and protects them is that he binds our lives together into one. That's why church is important. You don't show up here to check off a box and get God happy with you for another week. You show up here because here is where the community of faith binds your life together with others and you share life with others and in that unity, God Almighty is guarding you. One of the most painful realities of the Christian life of the life of a follower of Jesus is the many times where we see people uh, undervalue this unity and even despise it and even toss it aside as something worthless. And there's always reasons for it. There's always reasons believers uh, or followers of Jesus stop uh, sharing life together and even get angry at each other and even say mean things to each other and part ways. And there are always justifications and and people always have their list of reasons and the things that the other person has done wrong, the the things they believe that are not right, the, the actions they have taken that are not right and sinful and all of these as though the unity the Father is going to bring to us had anything to do with our perfection. As though the only way we could expect this unity to happen among us is for all of us to be right and behave right all the time. That's not the miracle of the unity God is bringing to bear on our lives. The miracle is that despite our many shortcomings and failings, despite the many ways in which we fall short and get it wrong, we still would give our life for one another. That's the unity Jesus is pleading with the Father for. Don't ever despise that. Don't ever toss it aside like waste a waste of effort. It's interesting to me that on this final night where the cross looms so large on Jesus' horizon, Jesus has time not only to pray for his disciples, but he lets us know what is vitally important to our safety and our unity is the way in which the Father is guarding us, making us one as Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. says while I was with them I was guarding them in your name which you have given me I want you to ponder for a moment the miracle that Jesus was able to call together the twelve people he did and make of them a family one of them was a zealot you know what zealots were they were the extremists they were the pro-Jew anti-Rome fanatics And they wanted nothing more than for Rome to butt out. To just leave them alone and let them govern themselves and worship God how they saw fit and just get out of there. You know, there was another guy among the 12 that was an ex-publican. He used to collect taxes from his fellow Jews for the Romans. And he had basically sold out to the Romans for the money. And he was willing to uh, take these uh, backbreaking taxes from his fellow Jews and was considered by most Jews as a traitor to their own people. How did Jesus get the two of them to be united? How did he bind them together? Fishermen and, and people from all these different walks of life. But Jesus says, while I was with them, I was guarding them in your name, which you have given me. This unity he's praying for, Jesus has been accomplishing among the twelve. I guarded, and not one of them was destroyed, with one exception. The son of destruction, that's a way of referring to Judas Iscariot. And uh, for Hebrews, to say son of something is basically to describe them. The word that follows the son of describes the person. So uh, Jesus, for example, gave James and John uh, a nickname, sons of thunder. We're told in Luke that when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, they went up to Jesus and said, you want us to ask God to bring down fire from heaven and destroy them? So uh, sons of thunder was probably a a way of conveying they they were impetuous and hot-headed and uh, somewhat destructive uh, or perhaps loud and full of bluster. Who knows? But but it's a way of describing them. So to describe Judas as the son of destruction is to say that his whole life is basically reduced to uh, self-destruction. Among the 12, there was one who never came to faith. One who never really crossed the threshold into fully surrendering his heart to Jesus and what he was bringing. And eventually, when it came to the moment of choice, he chose greed over Jesus. And in doing so, destroyed himself. Why did Jesus have one of those among his twelve? Well, he says so that scripture might be fulfilled. David uh, wrote many psalms which are considered to be messianic. So that the, the things David is talking about in his own life kind of project forward beyond his own experience to a Messiah yet to come from his descendants. And in those Psalms of David, there are often moments where David is praying and talking to God and complaining about close friends who he had trusted and loved and poured himself into and how they had betrayed him. And the Psalms talk about their end being destruction. And Jesus says that uh, he didn't take on uh, Judas because he was somehow hoodwinked, that somehow he was taken in by this false uh, claim of faith. He knew all along who who Judas was and, and what his heart was. But he still loved him and he still received him because it was part of the divine plan for the Messiah to experience even the betrayal of a close, intimate friend, somebody who has shared your table for years, somebody you have included in the most intimate parts of your life and loved without fail. For somebody like that to sell you out to be nailed to a cross, it had something to do with Jesus becoming the perfect author of salvation and hebrews were told that it was through what he suffered that Jesus became the perfect author of salvation so that he he might uh, fully understand the breadth of our experience in this broken fallen world to the point of even including the experience of such a painful act of betrayal it was part of the plan So he continues telling the Father, now I'm coming to you. I'm speaking these things in the world. So Jesus is making sure he says these things in the hearing of his disciples before he's gone. And he says why he's telling them all these things. So that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You might think yeah Jesus is asking the father to guard us. So that uh, the way our lives are being lived will bring glory to Christ. And more people will be drawn to faith in him. And his big plan will continue to be carried out. And that's really all God cares about. Is that we surrender our lives to his grand mission. Whatever that is. That may be and whatever that may cost us in our own measly little lives is really insignificant in the grand picture of His kingdom and His redemption work. Now, I do agree that the kingdom of God is much bigger than my little life. I do agree that the scope of salvation, of redemption in Christ boggles the mind, the extent of it, the glorious beauty of it is far beyond anything that my little life can encapsulate. And really, the worries and concerns of my petty heart are not really of any consequence in the grand scheme of what God is accomplishing. I understand that. And it could be that God says, listen, this is the plan and you surrender your life to it because that is your duty as a creature created by me for my purposes and I expect you to fulfill what I have set before you. And if it costs you a lot, then it costs you a lot. And if you suffer, you suffer. But there's a bigger purpose uh, going on here. All of that is true. But it turns out that God is good. It turns out that God doesn't just have these grand schemes and plans in mind and he wants the redemption of the world to progress forward and he wants all who will turn to faith to be reached and brought in. The whole purpose of this is that God wants to share his goodness with us. So yes, he could say, suck it up and deal with it and just do what I told you to do. But notice that Jesus himself says, the reason I want them guarded, the reason I want my glory in their lives to be guarded, the reason I want them to be brought into one by a miraculous work of God the Father, the reason for all of this is that I want my joy to fill their lives fully. We're told that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame of the cross. Consider how great that joy was, given what he went through to reach it. That is what he wants to bring into our lives He wants to fill to the brim so there's no room for any more of it. He wants his joy to be fulfilled and filled up to the top in our lives. That's what he's pleading with the Father to see happen in our lives. The glory God is guarding in us is found in our perfect unity, which grants us full participation in the very joy of Jesus himself. Think of your own life. How have you found the joy of Jesus completed in your life through the unity he has allowed you to enjoy with fellow believers? I can tell you in my own life that the darkest days I have faced in my 50-plus years thus far, I have been carried by people like you. I have been guarded by your love and fellowship. Verse 14, I have given them your message, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, rather that you guard them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your message is truth. Jesus reviews what he's done. I want you to notice in this prayer, it's very clear that Jesus isn't just talking to the Father. He's also talking to the disciples who are listening. Now, it's often been a pet peeve of mine in prayer services. Sometimes people will pray prayers for, for the people sitting around them rather than for God, you know. And, and, and sometimes that can be not a good thing. Uh, you take advantage of a prayer to kind of tell somebody... That you think they're doing something wrong, you know. So sometimes that's not appropriate or right, but I think Jesus gives us a good example that when we are talking to God together, we want to do so in such a way that we are all participating in the conversation and we all understand what we're discussing. So Jesus sometimes explains things as he's talking to the Father that he knows he and the Father understand perfectly well, but he's making sure that he's bringing the disciples who are around him along with him in this prayer. And praying together is different than praying alone. I encourage you to make that a part of your Christian walk, of your following Jesus, to pray together with others. So he says, I've given them your message He's been very clear that the words he speaks are the words the Father gave him to speak. I've given them your message, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." The moment they turned to Jesus in faith, they defected from a creation in rebellion against its creator. That's basically what Adam and Eve started was a, a coup attempt. They b- decided, "I want to be God. I want to call the shots. I want everything to be whatever I want it to be, and I don't want to answer to any creator. I know I didn't make myself, but I can pretend. I can pretend like I'm self-contained and self-sustaining, and that has been the cry of humanity from the moment the fall first happened. It's We have shaken our fists at God. We want to be our own God. Boy, isn't that the cry of our culture today? I want to define everything about my existence as I see fit. I want to define everything about reality as I choose to define it. And I want the world, I want the cosmos, I want God to conform to my demands. The world in rebellion against its creator. What happens when somebody abandons that fight and defects and says, you know what, I am waving the white flag I am done fighting. I'm surrendering. Jesus, take me. I want to be yours. And I want you to be mine. I want to enjoy the eternal living that can only happen in this relationship with you. When you do that, the world that is still at war with God says, Wait a minute, you don't belong here. You don't celebrate and applaud what we celebrate and applaud. You talk about surrender to the enemy. And in the world, God is the great enemy. The ultimate party pooper. Jesus knows the minute they came to faith in him, they joined his status as being not of this world. Now, Jesus doesn't say, Father, just whisk them out of the world. Why should they endure the hatred of a world at war against you? Just, they've come to faith in you, give them the eternal life they have asked for, and take them out of this misery. He doesn't say that. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Rather, that you guard them from the evil one. There is someone out there whose intent is only our harm. The Bible describes him as Satan or the devil or the prince of the powers of the air, the prince of this world. And Jesus knows in, within a few hours he's going to be soundly defeated because when Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world, the claim Satan had to uh, accuse, the claim he had of authority over sinners who have rebelled against God and are therefore worthy of eternal judgment, th- that has been removed by the cross. And Satan knows not only that he is defeated, but that his time is short. And the Bible describes him as a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour before his time is up. He wants to drag everybody to hell that he can. He wants to destroy everything that he can. So Jesus says, Father, don't get them out of the world, but guard them from the forces that are intently seeking their destruction. Guard them. And this is our safety in the world. It's not the saints who have gone before. I don't carry around little placards or statues at home of saints that I can appeal to because God's too busy for me. There's no saint who's going to secure my life. There's no angel out there I can appeal to who's going to secure my life. My ancestors will not take care of me. And one of the wonderful things that following Jesus frees us from is the sham of magical thinking that there's some kind of magic spell out there that if I just figure out the right incantation or the right uh, action, the right ritual then I can somehow secure myself from evil forces in this world. Some people try to even bring that into the the faith in Christ uh, through the back door so that you reduce the Bible to basically a spell book and you have to find the right verse that will protect you and you put it on your door and that's going to protect you from evil or you get a pastor to show up at your house and shake around some weird water and say some juju and all of a sudden you're protected from evil. That's not the way it works. Jesus frees us completely from that kind of magical thinking. The Bible is not a spell book. It is a message. It is an invitation to a relationship. And it is that relationship that secures our lives. Nothing else. It's not anything you know. It's not any ritual you perform. It's not any person you know other than God himself. That is your security in this life. If we have come to faith in Jesus, this world at war with its creator is no more our home than it was Jesus's. He didn't belong, we don't belong. How are we guarded? Jesus asked that they be set apart, that's the word holy, sanctify them, set them apart, Set them aside to yourself. Set them apart in the truth. Your message is the truth. Now, if you've been paying attention as we worked our way through the Gospel of John, who is the message that became flesh and set up his tabernacle among us? Jesus is the message of God made flesh. Who is the truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. There's none of those things apart from Him. Basically, we are secured in this world not by training, not by friendships, not by living under a just government free of corruption. We are secured in this world because we are set apart in Jesus, because we belong to Him. We don't belong to this world. And in that being set apart, we find that God is in communication with us. There is a message to be shared with us that we spend our lives reading and hearing. There is a truth that is woven into the very fabric of who God is. And that is unveiled to us in relationship. That is what secures us in this world. Jesus did not ask that we be removed from this world that is hostile to God and to those who belong to him. He asked that we be guarded in this world. How have you experienced God guarding your life in the hardships of living in this world? Let's finish verses 18 and 19. Just as you sent me into the world, So I sent them into the world and for them I set myself apart so that they may also be set apart in truth. We might think that all of this God guarding us and protecting us is simply uh, so that we can continue living. But you know what? In in the world that is to come, in the new heavens and new earth, in the eternity that God has promised us on the other side of the grave, all of that is, is laid out eternally for us. If that were all God were interested in, the moment we come to faith, he would whisk us away from this world into that. Why hasn't he? Because there is mission. Because the story of redemption plays out in relationships that are happening every day on this world. And we become participants with God in this task of rescue. So Jesus says, just as you, Father, sent me into the world to save, that's exactly how I am sending them into this very same world. You realize that is the task of your living If you are a follower of Jesus, the the reason you're here and not with the Father, enjoying freedom from all of this mess, is that you have been sent into this world to do the thing Jesus came into this world to do, which is draw people to life, extend redemption, And how is Jesus accomplishing this? He says, for them I set myself apart. Again, that word, I holy myself, I sanctify myself, I set myself apart. I think Jesus is talking about the cross. He is about to willingly uh, accept death. He is about to willingly walk to the cross. And he'll say this. I could call down ten legions of angels right now and put a stop to the whole thing. He stayed on the cross until he breathed his last breath knowing that he could have called the whole thing off at any moment. But he set himself apart to die. To make possible our rescue. And he became the sacrifice that over thousands of years was foreshadowed by all of those doves and goats and lambs and cattle that had been sacrificed on altars. None of those covered any sin. But they pointed forward in hope to the moment when the real sacrifice would be set apart. I consecrate Myself. I set myself apart to the task of redeeming the cosmos so that they may also be set apart. But notice he doesn't say set apart to die. We're not going to die and by dying uh, are redeem the world. We don't do that. Jesus already did all of that. But we, because of his death, become set apart for truth. We can be set apart in truth. We can be set apart in the reality of the God who is truth. Jesus asked the Father to set us apart in him. He who is God's message, who is the truth, so that we may accomplish the task for which he sends us into the world. He gave his life to make this possible. How are you living out the mission Jesus has given you in this world? Jesus prayed for his disciples to bring him glory as the Father made them perfectly one. Their unity would guard them in this world. It would demonstrate the glory of the Father who sent Jesus into the world to redeem it. The Father's demonstrating the goodness of that redemption in the loving unity he is forging among those who follow Jesus. And this is how Jesus wants to share the fullness of his joy with us. The very joy that flooded his heart when he accomplished the redemption of the cosmos. Because we have found life in God the Father through Jesus Christ, this broken world has lost its appeal to us. We know where our true home is now, and we're just passing through these shadow The Father guards us in this world by grounding us in Jesus, who is his message and who is the only truth in listening to Jesus, and in finding our hearts grounded in the truth that we can find only in Him, we are guarded in this world that is so often hostile. I want to ask you, have you found the unity, the joy, the security that is only found in God the Father through Jesus Christ? We're going to have an opportunity to respond to the Word of God today. I always, I believe God's message is not meant simply to inform, but it is an invitation to relationship. So you may be here this morning. You may not know Jesus the way I'm describing. You may not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. I want to invite you to enter into that status today. To surrender your life to him let him redeem and rescue and make you a part of this eternal living in him if that's you this morning this is your time to pray that prayer and we have people who will help you let's all stand (coughs) there are two areas at the back here Uh, we have put up uh, some some dividers there to provide a little bit of privacy Uh, if you would like there are people at at either side that would love to pray with you and help you (coughs) pray if you need that maybe you already know christ and he's calling you to a commitment with him and you need to share that with somebody and have them pray with you take advantage during this time also whatever god lays on your heart maybe you just need somebody to pray with you this morning if that's you today uh, then take advantage here at the back of the auditorium and and Pray with the people there. I'm also going to uh, let you know the the altar here is open. If you want to just come forward and kneel and pray during this time. Uh, Do whatever God has laid on your heart in response to his word this morning as we sing this final song.